Hello, and welcome to the Trans Questioning Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Zedek. I am sitting in a park. It is 2.57 p.m. on Wednesday, June 8th. Um, specifically, took a train out to uh, do some grocery shopping. Currently procrastinating while I uh, wait to start grocery shopping. Um, I say wait and procrastinate. That's not... I'm walking. I'm walking around. Or I've been walking. I'm sitting down now. Uh, just wandering the area. Wandering the international district. Oh, hello, Crow. It's very loud. Uh, I'm uh, here in in the Danny Wu uh, allotment gardens. Yeah. Decided to come up here. My girlfriend's brought me here <clears throat> uh, once or twice. It's really nice. It's a whole bunch of little garden allotments for um, largely elderly East Asian immigrants to the area. Um, it's a very interesting site. Coming from coming from Oklahoma that just doesn't have this kind of thing. I mean I, I imagine there's not very many places that have this kind of thing, but if you can imagine just rows and rows of wooded allotments with little gardens um, with walls that are built out of pretty much whatever anybody can find. Logs, pieces of old fence, wooden pallets, uh, steel shelving. It's really interesting. It's sort of a, a demonstration of what's possible even in conditions of pretty extraordinary poverty at times. Um, I'll have to forgive the noise. I, I, I had a feeling coming out today that I would want to record something. And I'm not really sure what I want to talk about, but I knew when I walked out here that I was probably going to sit down. Uh, and I figured, oh, the ambience of the city and the park. And yeah, I've got the sounds of birds. There's also a big highway right behind me. I'm sitting on a wooden bench that's sort of looking out over the city. Um, uh, it's it's interesting because so you've got this gorgeous this gorgeous area, all these creatures, all this life, and uh, got this horrid highway screaming at all times. I'm trying to block the wind from my phone. I'm recording this on my phone because I am committed to uh, doing this the worst possible way I could. Um, so you've got this highway here that is just screaming. And then I think the saddest thing walking around the city, at least for me, is anytime you walk near a, uh, a highway, you'll notice that there are how homeless encampments all along the highway. That's because it's the only land that is worthless enough that the capitalist cops don't bother sweeping it. Um, and it, I, I can't imagine how terrible my last apartment was on a urban highway and uh, the car noise was constant and it drove me insane. I can't imagine how much worse it must be when you don't even have walls and glass windows between you and the car noise. And the fumes, exhaust. It's gotta be a nightmare. 
So it is Friday, June 10th at 2.16 p.m. I am recording in my bedroom. Uh, I've been hard at work on my next YouTube video, which is about the game Tunic, which came out a few months ago. That video was supposed to be like a, a, a quick thing that I churned out to, uh, uh, to be like, all right, I'm back. Oh God, I've got mouth sounds real bad, don't I? Ugh. It's always something. Anyway, um, I've had this video in progress for like two months now because it's, um, it's a good game. And every time I sit down to write about it or play it more to, to kind of figure out what it is I'm trying to say, uh, I keep finding new things that I want to say about it. It's, um, it's a really interesting game and in how it inspires connective thoughts elsewhere. Uh, but maybe that's partially just where I am as a critic. I have a, I have a thing planned for a lot of my videos coming up if I can figure out how to put together a consistent production cycle. Um, I have a thing planned and I wanted my next like big scripted video after Tunic to be a sort of, um, I guess, introduction to the thing that I'm doing. Uh, although I don't plan on announcing the thing or even uh, explicitly saying what the thing is even in that video or any of the videos um, that are involved in that thing. Uh, but the, the the reason why I've taken so long on this video is that I realized at a certain point that it sort of, just by accident, it works really well as a way to start doing the thing that I want to start doing. Uh, so I've been, I've let myself take a bit more time with that video than I uh, honestly probably should have. Um, and this is also at the same time that uh, pre-production on Godfields 3 Part 2 has earnestly begun. So it's been very busy and, and I'm still, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to put together like a, uh, I hate this, this phrase, work-life balance. You'd think for, for as, as long as I've been doing this that I would be better at it by now, but I don't know, uh, now that I'm living somewhere where I have a reasonable suspicion I'm probably going to be here for a, f a little while longer uh, than just one year. I've been looking back and realizing, oh hey, the last like three, four years have been a kind of a non-stop parade of change and um, instability. And maybe that's not actually super great for... Um, one's ability to do stuff. It sort of clicked for me that the last time I was really regular in my video production was when I was uh, in college. Uh, like, you know, I graduated college the same month that I released the transitioning video in December of 2018. And then in 2019, I had a good string of videos that were uh, that's when the McElroy video happened. That's when I was on the H-Bomb stream. And that all sort of blew up. Um, and then the the two things that happened were I wasn't in college anymore. And I uh, fell into Homestuck real hard. <laughs> and, and started working on Godfeels. And now that is like the most creatively fulfilling project I've ever been involved in. And um, I've got... Uh, like five big pieces of butcher paper on my wall next to my desk right now where I've just been jotting out notes and, and planning out the story that I've got planned. Uh, I might talk about it some on this podcast on a future episode just because um, uh, we're doing some, some cool stuff with it. It's not We're, we're trying to actually do uh, speculative fiction. I don't know if you've heard of this genre. Uh, speculative fiction. It's sort of like, what if sci-fi or fantasy uh, was good? It's like, what if what if sci-fi was about something? What if a story was speculating about a reality that wasn't ours, but was still related to ours and might have some insight about ours? Remember when stories did that? I don't. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things and... Um, it's unfortunate 
because my uh, uh, my my healthcare clinic or my my mental health care clinic closed down. It was the uh, Seattle Counseling Center, which was uh, the uh, oldest running LGBTQ focused uh, mental health clinic in the country. Apparently, I didn't know this. Uh, I went with them because they took me. <laughs> and I was doing research and I saw that they were LGBT friendly and that they weren't didn't it seemed like they weren't weird about ADHD drugs, which is a big big thing for me. Um uh which honestly that hasn't been as 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 big of a thing here as it was in Oklahoma, thank fuck. But uh yeah, that place was good. I liked my therapist there. Um and then a few months ago, they sort of closed down the uh, board of directors. Uh, just didn't tell anybody that actually worked, did did the work of the company that they were out of money. And they didn't bother trying to fundraise. They didn't, you know, do anything with, with any sort of like COVID relief funds that might have been abundant for um, uh, companies in a similar sort of position. Um, they just kind of gave up and... The, uh, the 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 list of the board of directors, which is no longer up on the 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 SCS website, but it is on archive.org. Um, looking at the board of directors, uh, it is it sure is a whole hell of a lot of people who uh, are like business tech gurus, people who are like, oh yeah, I I did a startup app. And now I'm a, a, a senior fellow at the Institute for Money Bag Making. Um, and that's why I'm good at uh, running a, a, a nonprofit that benefits poor queer people in Seattle. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, uh, I got, uh, so. I, that week was tough because this is, this, let me, let me lay out this week. Uh, I have a thing I actually want to talk about here. I wasn't planning on jumping immediately into this, but, um, I, I, that week I say with a smile, uh, Sunday night, my cat died. We, uh, uh, I, I, we, we had just gotten Ruthie back from our friend, um, after we we spent some months sort of doing stuff, I guess there's a whole goddamn saga that of of what my life has been the last two years or whatever that I really haven't covered on this show. I don't want to get into it very much today, but the point is that we we left our cat with uh, our 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 friend who was also co-parent of the cat. We all lived together for a bit uh, while we were out um, uh, trying to find housing. We finally found housing, and then we, uh, after some months of uh, getting furniture and getting our shit together, trying to settle, we finally decided, yeah, it's okay. We can we can take on uh, we can we can bring Ruthie back into our lives, and it was very exciting to to do so. And then uh, she was here for what a week, two weeks, not longer than two weeks. I think I think like a week and a half. Uh, and she was she had been getting kind of sick, but it seemed like it was quite possible that it was the stress of where she was living um in just in terms of um uh i think i think it was it was too cramped for her over too long a period of time that was our that was my logic at at the at the time anyway and so our place was a little bit bigger we thought you know she has more room to run around it'll be it'll be nicer for her and it was it was nicer for for her for a little bit but then she started getting sick and uh uh, well, I won't go into the details, but, um, she, she had, uh, FIP, what is it, F feline immuno something, I don't know, it's basically COVID for cats, um, and it came on very suddenly, and, uh, uh, so she, she died, and she was only a little over a year old, uh, and, and she, it just, it just happened, it was unexpected, and, uh, we had to put her down, um, and pay 700 bucks for the pleasure of putting her down, by the way. Um, I guess it actually was closer to 800. Uh, so that happened on that Sunday. And then on, uh, Tuesday, I got news that my granddad was in the hospital. Um, and then Wednesday, find out that he passed away, uh, and that I would probably have to fly down to Texas for his funeral, which I did, um... And then uh, that Friday, 
at my therapy appointment, my therapist told me, uh, after I told her everything, she said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that your bad week is not over because it turns out the SES is closing down. Uh, so when they say the bad things come in threes, uh, I feel like there is some there is some merit to to that sort of cosmic recurrence. I say all this with a smile in my face because I, I guess humor, smile in my face, smile in my voice. I don't know if you can tell that I'm smiling right now. Um, I, I I just I've been through so much shit like this that it it just. All, all, all you can do at a certain point is laugh, and of course I've cried plenty, but um, all of that happened. And so the, 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 the upshot is that um, my, uh, uh, my brain meds are about to run out, and there is a, a whole thing. I'm on Medicaid here in Seattle. Uh, which is great. It's the first time I've really been on insurance and it's, you know, I, I have HRT and it's free and it, and it works and all my other drugs are free. And there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's nice to just have insurance and just to be able to like do healthcare stuff. It's pretty cool. It feels like that should just be the way things are for everybody. Right now, mental health care wise, there is just a massive shortage of, uh, of personnel and uh, the, not everybody takes Medicaid. And there has been a concerted effort um, nationwide, but per- particularly in states with the Medicaid expansion, uh, to undercut Medicaid as much as possible. So fewer and fewer places accept Medicaid. Uh, partially, this is just by virtue of the fact that uh, filing uh, claims on Medicaid requires filling out a shit ton of paperwork that nobody wants to deal with. And this is, of course, by design. Because um, this is, I mean, this is, this is how everything is done now. Anything that is given, uh, nominally given away for free to people, the cost must be the effort of bureaucratic uh, uh, labyrinths, the the toil of trying to convince a bunch of bureaucrats that you deserve to not starve to death. But so the upshot is, like I talked to my primary care physician or my general practice. I don't know what fuck. But I, I, my, I, I, I talked to my doctor who I have now. I've had one appointment with her to, to get a new prescription for my HRT. I told her, oh, yeah, I was with SES and then they closed. And, uh, and now I'm looking for a new clinic that'll take Medicaid. And she just sort of was like, yeah, I'm really sorry. You're going to have a hard time with that. And so far, that's been the case. I've emailed a couple of places, and they're like, yeah, we're not taking new patients right now. And it's and it's not just like, it's not just the, that Medicaid is being undermined. It's also the fact that there is a staffing shortage on, on account of the fact that um, everything medical is currently overtaxed by COVID. Um, a lot of people are getting sick. There are actually more infections now than there were a year ago. Which is one of those things that no one is just, there's just nobody talking about it in, in like, the, in, I guess, mainstream media outlets. It, it, it's such a bizarre time <laughs> to be alive right now. Part of why I decided to record this episode is that I was listening to um, the most recent episode as of recording of uh, the Death Panel podcast, which if you don't listen to, I highly recommend uh, at this point, the pretty much the only two podcasts that I listen to uh, for sure regularly are uh, Death Panel and Citations Needed, just because they're both very frank about uh, what's going on and their opinions about what's going on, and they're not really afraid to uh, call um, people in the media and, and, and like public officials and, and, and health officials uh, uh, jackasses when they act like jackasses. Um, and they're just, they're just, they're just, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're all, they're all, um, Marxists or at least communists. Um, uh, but they're, uh, they're good. But the, the most recent episode of, um, Death Panel is about outdoor transmission of COVID-19. And this episode, I highly recommend you go listen to it because throughout the pandemic, there has been this um this growing psychological doublespeak 
where it feels like we talk about COVID the way in in a way that we don't talk about any other social ill, and this this means of communication has has just sort of been mindlessly reproduced by um, well well not mindlessly very deliberately reproduced by uh, the likes of the paper of record, uh, New York Times. Um, uh, and 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 uh, Wall Street Post, The Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just the the mainstream liberal news outlets. Um, they there is this this this. Well, okay. So I bring it up because this episode, what's what's what really hit me was just how much it, it it clarified this sort of psychological doublespeak that has been growing and growing as time has gone on through this pandemic, where it just feels like all of the things that were common sense two years ago are now suddenly, like, alarmist and, and, and don't make sense to people. Like, I, I remember when the protests were happening, when, when the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone was a thing, and I was going, I was going there every day, it was, it was like common knowledge that you can get COVID outside. People were like, like, there is a reduced risk of transmission outside because you've got wind, but like, you can still catch it. You should still mask, especially when there's a lot of people in a confined space. Um, like every time I was at Chaz, like that was the thing is that, that, you know, if, if they're, if you're in a large congregate setting, everybody should be masked up and this is how we protect each other. Um, and now, uh, that, uh, it just seems like people just sort of assume, oh, you can't get COVID outside. <laughs> um, and, and the ways that, uh, uh, we have instrumentalized personal responsibility in this pandemic as a way to pretty exclusively undermine uh, any and all labor movements. Uh, we are in, as, as, as a number of people have now identified it, we are entering the summer of labor discipline, where two years ago you had the George Floyd uprisings uh, and, and you had amid the pandemic calls for Medicare for all and just generally widespread reform of the government and healthcare system. And it was a perfect opportunity to do so. And the Biden administration resoundingly said, no, thank you. And instead went through, spent, spent the entire preceding two years manufacturing consent for a, a false post-COVID world where, oh, well, we've, we've done a good job of getting vaccines out. And now that the vaccines are out, people are vaccinated. And that means COVID's not a problem, as if there has ever been a successful vaccine program in, 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 in history or a successful uh, pandemic response in history that only involved uh, vaccines. Why did I black out that word? Blank out. Jesus. Um, there's, never been a, there's never been a successful pandemic response in history that only involved vaccines or even only involved vaccines and masking. Like the lowest the COVID numbers have been in America since the start of the pandemic was the period when we were paying people to stay home. That's not a fucking coincidence. And and now we're looking at China like, oh, they have to – there's a fucking trash fu- – I, I used to li- – I don't listen to Trash Future anymore. I like them. They're fine. Um, but there was there was a recent episode, a recent-ish episode where they were like, oh, everybody – everybody we, I know somebody in China who's so bored because they keep getting locked down. And they, they had like one breakout that, that had like a thousand some odd cases and, uh, and, and they locked down the whole region. And oh, it's so draconian and – uh, and, and somebody on the show said, ah, uh, China, make a vaccine that works. Guys, fucking, uh, like, 50, like, what, what is it now? It's like f- at least 50% of COVID deaths, not just cases, but deaths, have been in those who are vaccinated. A, a solid, like, 25% of them are the people who are, who, who are boosted. And more to the point, hey, man, yeah, it sucks to be in a lockdown, but, like, at least... China gives a shit and you look at their numbers 
and it's just it's microscopic compared to us and it, it, like we we act like oh covid zero is irresponsible like trying to mitigate covid at all is somehow childish irresponsible over a million americans have died of a preventable illness and this is this is not an accident this is not the, none of this is happening just sort of like willy-nilly the, the democrats are deciding to let this happen because it's more financially uh, lucrative for if not themselves, then certainly for their donors, as we have plainly seen by the ways that billionaires have become even more multi-billionaires than they already were over the course of the pandemic. And the, 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 the institutions responsible for creating uh, or, or for, for spreading information in general are just recreating boilerplate the, uh, the, what, what, what the Democratic Party says without really interrogating it. Um, they just say, oh, the CDC uh, decided to change how it uh, uh, measures danger from COVID. Uh, nothing about the conditions on the ground have changed. All that's changed is how we, uh, uh, the, the, the formula we use to process the data. And now, as a result of that, everything is fine and everybody can take off their masks, which, as we know, are the scarlet letter of the pandemic. Uh, and the worst thing, like, it's they're so inconvenient and they're so annoying. Um, and everybody can go back to doing sports and doing doing concerts and, and going to class. You can get your stupid fucking kids out of your house, out of your hair. You never have to talk to them again. They can go to school, become a good little worker like everybody else. God, I sound like such a fucking hippie. I just, I just, I, this whole, this whole situation just pisses me off so much. And I, um... And I'm and I'm and I'm sort of just losing my mind. I think everybody's losing their minds uh, one way or another right now. Um, but that episode of of Death Panel, uh, I, I actually haven't finished it yet, but it's it's very good so far. Um, and I, uh, I I had to uh, when I got out of the shower, I had to pause it because I had a bunch of thoughts that I wrote down, which I will read to you momentarily. Um, but I I uh, th- there's just a there's there's just a couple of like really basic things like, you know. It, it just—it seems like it should be common sense that that aerosols spread, whether you're inside or outside. It's not like it's not like you go outside and magically you breathe and then the virus just dies. The air outside and the air inside are the same. It's just a matter of circulation and and crowd density. Anyway, that death panel episode is good. It's striking to me because it it lays out how poor science education in this country really is and 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 just how deliberately bad the messaging has to have been uh and it's easy i think it's very easy to get mad at people for not masking in public for not following on just the most basic of guidelines and and i have plenty of anger reserved in my heart for those people but at the same time folks are doing what they're told and it's the government's responsibility to spread consistent messaging on the subject this is this is a viral pandemic and you the individual do not catch covid in a vacuum another person spreads it to you and you spread it to another person it is not a matter of personal responsibility it is a social ill that needs to be attacked at on a social level and and treating it as though that any given individual is capable of living in a, a free life without having to sacrifice anything for anybody else is um well let me just read uh, this bit i have this little book this little i guess it's a journal i don't know what it is exactly um it is it is a a booklet that i have i have uh, been keeping specifically for like materialist marxist communist thoughts i cannot speak to how good this is we're going to find out together i just jumped out of the shower and jotted all this down in a hurry um so let's just see where we go here pure individualism rugged bootstrapped responsible is poison to the working class Elevating individuals, specifically those with high IQs or good BMIs or superior cranial shapes, elevating them above the collective teaches us that there is a mass of, let's face it, non-player characters from whence the special must rise. In the same way that companies can promote 
certain workers to break unions, so too does the myth of the singular ascendant hero untethered from context create among us a competition. This process happens over and over, recurring through gender roles, racial hierarchies, entrepreneurs, auteurs, inventors, what have you. We've systemically devalued non-glamorous work through culture, turned every job but the most useless ones into stepping stones on a path to a far more glamorous future. That future is virtually impossible to achieve, and those who do achieve it are often bolstered by family money they claim didn't help at all. How funny that those who tut-tut loudest about personal responsibility are the ones who've most directly benefited from what amounts to a microsocial safety net. Microsocial here meaning a family. And where does their money come from? A secret store, inert, ex extant, neutral? No, it's pilfered from the wages of workers who've been promised that if they put up with peanuts long enough, eventually they'll get to have steak every night. This is not to say that exceptional people don't exist. On the contrary, I believe that most people are exceptional or contain the possibility for exceptionality in their own ways, if only they had the time and resources. Often we gawk at child prodigies while hilariously simultaneously appraising expressionist or modern art with my kid could have done that, as if these child prodigies are somehow extra-humanly skilled. But why do we take it as proof that these kids are like singular geniuses than as proof that it's actually not all that hard to be a genius if you're allowed to just sort of be one? If people had the time and resources and freedom to do anything but work all day and stress about bills all night, we'd be up to our eyeballs in an unknowable avalanche of new things. Art, yes, but why not science, too? Why not math or philosophy, horticulture, public transit? If national labor offices connected people to fields and experts they could learn from, if there wasn't such pressure to make ends meet that folks could find what needs doing and do it with respect and dignity, how different would our world be? What is exceptionalism without a collective to work for and with? Why stand alone above the millions when you could lift them up with you? We celebrate exceptional people as if their success is aspirational. In truth, it's only ever one of two things. Either it's a lie bolstered by stolen wealth, or it's a crucible of mistreatment and abuse from a capitalist superstructure that rewards precisely one type of person. Do I, as a YouTuber, podcaster, fanfic writer who pays rent with my job, feel successful? Do I want people to aspire after my example? God, no. I'm here because I persevered through deaths and moves and poverty and half a dozen undiagnosed, untreated mental illnesses that tried to kill me constantly. Until I realized I was transgender, I firmly believed that I would kill myself before hitting 30. My life has, in a lot of ways, been hell, frankly. But what's worse is that I know how much easier I had it at times because there were people in my family who bailed me out when things got bad, mostly with food and lodging, but often too with rent money to supplement my part-time job at a grocery store that I couldn't make full-time because of college work. At every stage of my life, I have been in profound opposition to capital, never interested in doing the things that would lead to a good career, because even as a teenager, it was obvious to me that a good career almost never involves doing good work. It's insane on its face that our society tells us our dreams and aspirations are a childhood indulgence, much like asking why in response to irrational adult behavior, because the answer is almost always capitalism said so, that at best those dreams ought to be funneled through an acceptably defined corporate pipeline where you yourself are not expected to do anything on your own steam, at least not until you've suitably internalized the company line, sublimating your passion into the profit-driven drive of a corporate entity that will never know your name, that will see you left in a pauper's grave the instant you fail to be useful. 
And again, that's at best. More realistically, you're told to abandon that drive in favor of doing something that will get you a job. Morals never enter the picture. Your passion and commitment are taken as granted by the capitalist, because instead of giving you enough money to survive and thrive and have a life outside of work, they string you along with messages of loyalty. They use words like team and partner and act as though you are a family. But what kind of family will throw you to the street the instant you fail to meet their expectations? The family of America. Bigoted, racist, homophobic, transphobic, spiteful, jealous, greedy, and worst of all, Christian. That's who. Just as the patriarchal nuclear family demands exceptionalism on its terms alone, so too does society. Just as children are the property of the father, we are the property of the fatherland. This reveals, perhaps, why the likes of Biden approach the working class with such dismissive and insulting paternalism. We ask for freedom, and Father tells us, eh, you have freedom, as long as you do exactly what we say and nothing else. We ask for COVID medications, health care, housing, education, food, culture, and the response is an exasperated, don't I do enough for you already, you ungrateful little shits? Isn't it enough that the good guys are in office now? What, you want the other guys in? They're just going to be worse for you. That's what I wrote. That's the point at which I stopped and decided to start recording this podcast. Um... I don't really know what to add to that, to be quite honest. It feels like we're just in this place of all of the, 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 the Democrats have locked arms with the heads of, of newspapers and of news networks. And this is not like a conspiracy in some grand, like, Illuminati sense. This is just... The, the the bourgeois class looking out for its own interests, everybody locking arms uh, with corporations in, in preserving capital and in, in forcing the working class to provide the blood that this engine needs in order to run. Um, I, I, I've, I've jotted down a bunch of notes about this process or my, my own sort of theorizing on this process. I have no idea how coherent any of these notes are. Uh, in reading the bit that I just finished reading, I had to like uh, redo a bunch of lines uh, and there's probably some, some uh, jumpy audio in there in the edit because... Uh, I mean, this is all freehand, and I'm often writing this while a little bit high. This, 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 to, to be fair, stuff I, I read in this episode wasn't high when I wrote it. Um, and I'm not high now. Wow. Uh, but, I, um, uh, but, I, but I have to, like, I have to pull my, my thoughts back together because I use a lot of shorthands and, and don't really finish sentences. One of these days i got to, like, actually fucking write some shit down in a way that I can share, but, um, and, and get feedback because I know that I'm not, um, I'm not writing in a vacuum and my observations are, uh, almost certainly limited by the fact that I'm just one person seeing from my one perspective. And, um, I don't know, but I, I'm trying to look at things from a materialist perspective. And, uh, as you will see in my tuning video, I guess, um, I am very concerned more, more and more with um, a, a, a more materialist, critical lens, returning to a style of, of media criticism that involves uh, actually addressing the fact that media emerges from and exists within a world that is real, and that people put work into media and that these things are not uh, value neutral or that somehow like the conditions of uh, the production of a game like Red Dead Redemption 2 is somehow irrelevant to the contents of the game. Um, I think somewhere in a bit in my tunic script that I probably am going to cut, uh, I said the line that um, separating art from the artist is like separating bullet from the gun. 
Um, that's my feeling on the matter. Uh, anyway, I, I want to read this other section uh, uh, thing of, that I wrote. I guess I guess this podcast has become so. This is why we're. It's going to transition to 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 gender punk eventually. Um, but I, I guess I'm just kind of testing out uh, my ability to talk about this sort of thing in a podcast form at all. Um, but this is, you know, my, my, my politics now are, are inexorable from everything else. And I've been saying a lot lately that everything is everything else. Uh, and I, and I, I'm trying to find ways to do that that aren't completely fucking obnoxious. Anyway, I want to read this bit that I wrote on March 5th of this year, which is 2022, Ideology is the self-organization of society. It's a series of rules and beliefs, a metaphysics of moral life, if you will, that are presented to all within it as normal, natural, and neutral. In America, the ideological norm is a sort of liberal authoritarianism masking with increasing ineffectiveness what can only be described as a death cult worshipping at the altar of Christ as capital. When you go to school in the American public education system, you are taught a version of history designed to make America look infallible. The result, after over a hundred years, is a society run by wealthy opportunists so accustomed to never facing any substantial pushback or criticism that they now insist that they have always been right and will always be right. No, we're not hypocrites. We're just doing the best we have with the information available to us. What's that? Insider trading? Ah, your mic must be cutting out. Next question, please. Ideology is at its most destructive when it is presented as invisible. When state media is private and corporate and runs exclusively on the fumes of authority given off by the rich, scrupulously recreated without a hint of critical examination. So much is presented as a given, stubbornly so, now as workers in this country at last begin to wake from the enslaved slumber imposed upon them in the Reagan years. Things like health care as a marketplace, employers as the central organizers of society, and the general ideological composition of that society. If you tell a we-need-to-move-on-from-COVID guy that people of color die at drastically higher rates than white people, that not all or even most immune-compromised people are homebound or in facilities or even know that they are compromised, and that a successful pandemic response requires federal action, they won't even acknowledge you. He doesn't have to. You, a dissenter, are not his audience, as a New York Times columnist. I'm sort of writing about, um, I'm probably writing in response to another Death Panel episode here, probably one about David Leonhardt. The journalist class has locked arms with the Biden administration, the corporate capital leviathans, the police state, and the very worst conservative conspiracy theorists in the country to ensure that labor, that the working class, is disciplined, diminished, undermined, and yes, killed. The George Floyd uprisings in summer 2020 were too close for comfort for even the nominally left Democrats. In the aftermath of that moment, they rightly guess that quite a lot of Americans, even those who are unsatisfied and desperate for change, are still too ideologically stifled for the kind of action that is necessary. A lifetime of not having to think about it has left them utterly unprepared to think about it. How society has been reorganized to systemically disempower the working class, in the same way that gig work corporations alienate workers from both a workplace, a boss, or even co-workers at all, so too have the engines of industry been migrated to the four corners of the earth. In this way, the threat of a general strike, traditionally among the stronger weapons in the socialist arsenal, is virtually non-existent. There are no lo localities organized around labor anymore. Half the people who work in an office are likely to be spread out across a 60-mile radius of suburban wasteland, no neighbors, only the other. In this way as well, the elite can rest easy knowing that they can go to war for any reason, and it doesn't really matter whether anyone approves. Most Americans support queer rights, support universal health care, support subsidized or free college and public education, support left populist social democrats like Bernie Sanders. Why then does the state sour so? It can only be because those charged with its running have no relationship with its material reality. Conservatives own the concept of gun culture, and Democrats are just conservatives now. 
Voting doesn't matter. Cops get infinite free money because they are the frontline killers in the class war. And we are left to our bootstraps, as if this time for sure they will teach us how to fly. That's a pithy little end line there. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of this world, man, and I just don't know. I don't know. Lately, I, I, I've probably expressed this sentiment on this podcast before, but I've lately been feeling, looking back, how many places where I, uh, the life that I was supposed to live just sort of fell apart under my feet. The life that I was promised just sort of evaporated at my fingertips. Um, I had this relatively stable childhood. And then when my parents split up, this was in 2000, uh, when we moved to Texas, uh, 9-11 happened. And then everything just sort of slowly started getting worse. Um, the life that I was raised for, the, the sort of lifestyle that I was, I was, I was told to expect and the career paths that I, 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 had, I had been told to, 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 to focus on all of that just kind of disappeared. Um, one by one people dying, people leaving, wandering around in, 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 in constant economic precarity, trying to find, I don't know, something to do with my life that wouldn't make me miserable. It's the thing that I, I rail on in, in some of this writing that like, I, I remember being in, in high school and thinking it was insane that careers have no relationship with to, to you as a person. A career is not something that you are allowed to have an opinion about. Like you shouldn't, it, 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 to be an adult is to to be able to set your morals aside and work for like an oil company. And if you aren't willing to do that, there's not really an alternative for you unless you have money or unless you get lucky. Like there, there are alternatives. I, I may be painting a, a, a much starker black and white picture than, than, than what is material reality at the moment. But it's always been true that like the artist has to work harder to, to get seen and it's just gotten harder and harder. And that's, you know, I, I, I look at things from the perspective of an artist because I am one, but, but I see this process recurring all over the goddamn place and in, in, in every industry. And I'm at this point now where I'm 33 and I'm looking at the future and I'm feeling like I, I, I don't know what to expect at this point, my feeling is um, probably the American government is not going to survive this 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 decade. I'm fully expecting some like I think the next two years are just going to keep being weird, especially depending on how the midterms go. And then I think we're going to elect like Hitler too in uh, uh, in 2024. And then I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen after that. I think some shit's going to come to head before the end of the decade. One way or another, a revolution is on its way. Whether it will be the fascists or the communists at the head of it, one can only guess at this point. But when I look back, at times it feels like I can see a future from where I was in 2000 and all of the sort of the potential fruits and uh, of my labors and all of the ways that society seemed positioned to help me get where I wanted to go, assuming I knew where I wanted to go at all. And it felt like these, these tendrils snaked their way in and started sucking the life out of everything. And like that, all the potential energy of the future that I imagined for myself just got drained away as the system demanded more nutrients, more blood from every corner that it could. Um, in the 70s, you had a, a situation where inflation was on the rise uh, and as a, as a result of, uh, well, there's, there's, there's of course, uh, some fun 
economic debate about the processes here that is largely a liberal reproduction of values. But you had what what is what is now referred to as the Volcker shock, where uh, the Fed raised interest rates on loans, and this this was meant to curb inflation by raising prices. And we're trying to do the same thing now. Um, but the Volcker shock was was a was disastrous policy. It resulted in the breaking of of unions. It was essentially um, an effort on the part of the government to take money out of the hands of public institutions and uh, worker-controlled institutions and put it in the hands of private contractors and um, uh, private companies and um, corrupt politicians. It was basically just robbing every corner of the labor market, of every spare penny that it had laying around, at the same time uh, criminalizing whole swaths of human behavior so that they could then create human labor uh, mills uh, called prisons, where, where they could just sort of store people very, very cheaply, and, uh, and, and there's a huge profit to be gained on uh, human storage. Uh, quite in the same way that there is a huge profit to be made on uh, building storage units in general, because uh, it's the the insurance rates are cheaper on storage lots. I can't. I, what was it specifically? I don't know. It's just it's just treating people like property uh, and like economic assets, and and using society's uh, general distaste for the quote unquote criminal as a as a um, uh, pretext for. Uh, creating the largest uh, population of imprisoned people on planet Earth uh, in a country that doesn't even have, what is it? What, what is it? Like, like we, we have like, what, 5 6% of the, the Earth's population? That's pretty fucked up. Um, and then we also have the biggest military budget uh, on Earth multiple times. Uh, that's cool. It's funny how that works. It's, this is like I said in the last episode, we have to put so much money and effort and time into creating a, a system, creating a, a circumstance that is, that is good for capital. And, and, and the result is something that is just terrible for everything alive. Um, and in this way, it really does feel to me very eldritch. And I am always waffling back and forth on, on how much I want to stress the eldritch angle, because on the one hand, um, I don't want to get too fanatical, because at the end of the day, I, I, I don't want to be written off as a fucking lunatic, right? But I do think that it is helpful, in, in a sense, to sort of recognize that what what ideology is doing, what capitalist ideology is doing, liberal capitalist ideology, neoliberal capitalist ideology, uh, is um, pressuring people invisibly to, to behave in certain ways, to not behave in certain ways. It is an invisible force that is pushing us in, in directions that, we, that aren't good for us, but we, we aren't presented with an alternative, and we're not educated about the alternatives. We're told, oh, communism was an alternative to capitalism, that it failed. The end. Ha <laughs> ha! And, you know, Lenin was a bad guy, and Marx was a bad guy, and that's it. And that's all, that's just, that's, that's all that we're taught in this country. Well, the Democrats are trying to do the Volcker shock again. So they're, they're raising interest rates, and, and, and all the, the cost of living has gone up. I feel like the value of the dollar has noticeably gone down just in the last couple of months. I don't know if anybody else has noticed this. I, well, I'm sure you have, because it's, it's been in the fucking news that the, 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 the cost of living is going up. Uh, while rents are going up, while everything is go increasing in price and absolutely nothing is getting better. So we're, we're, we're with the, with the uh, I mean, fucking, is it, was it literally Biden who said uh, we are, we're, our goal is to get the wages down? Like, oh, wages are too high, so we need to get them down by raising interest rates to, in order to, to curb inflation. So we're we're trying to do a Volcker shock again. We're trying to 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 do labor discipline to to put put workers in their place, and we're also trying to get all of that free money that they're just sitting on in their stupid little savings accounts and 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 pull it back uh, into the coffers of of the already rich. The problem with this, and 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 I never know where to draw the line between incompetence and corruption when it comes to the Democrats. But the problem with this is that. 
there are no more powerful unions to be undercut, really. Uh, who, 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 whose, whose membership is in such, such high millions that they are just, they just have so much money or whatever. There's no, uh, uh, like safety net or, or, or welfare left to like, to gut. It's already been gutted. They're, they're trying to strip the copper from the walls of an inst- of, of a series of institutions of a society that has already had the copper stripped from the walls. They're trying to reduce the wages of Americans when our wages, even at $15 an hour, barely are enough to pay rent in most cities. It's just not feasible. And I don't know the extent to which the Democrats have any awareness of this as a, as a material fact. You know, like I said, that, that the, the media is locking arms with Biden and corporations, this, this entire sort of bourgeois class that is the, 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 are the economic uh, royalty that run our society, essentially. They've locked arms uh, against labor, and they, they have, they've done so more or less automatically, it seems to me. It's, I mean, I'm sure there is some level of conspiracy between certain groups, but, but generally speaking, you know, I, I'm against any kind of conspiratorial lens of looking at this and just seeing, saying that these are, this is the natural result of systems and incentives. Um, this is what happens when a society is built around the idea that profit is more important than literally anything else, regardless of the reality of the rate of profit to fall. But I do wonder sometimes, with, with this sort of locking of arms um, and, and the way that, that corporate media is just sort of painting this very specific picture of, of the state of things in this country and, and how it seems like the Democrats are just sort of reading the New York Times and deciding all of their policy based on that, I genuinely wonder if they know how bad it is. Because it's pretty bad. It's already pretty bad, and it's just getting worse. And it's not like, oh, I have, you know, oh, well, we can afford it. It's, you know, ah, I've got to tighten the belt a little bit. I feel like most people have been at maximum belt tightness for a fucking while. And this this attempt at a Volker shock is just not going to do what they want it to do. And And so I am kind of staring down the barrel of the next two years, wondering what to expect from, from our leadership. Because on the one hand, one hopes that in the face of ever spiraling poverty and food scarcity and, and supply chain disruptions and probably collapse of healthcare systems and transit systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one hopes that the federal government and that the, the nominally left, ha ha ha, Biden Democrats would um, do something. But on the other hand, over a million Americans have died of COVID. And that is just, we're just told that that's like, that's just normal. That's fine. Oh, that's sad, but what are you going to do? Ah, what are you going to do, huh? Americans will get COVID and they fucking die. That's what happens. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to expect because we are now living in the world that that Margaret Thatcher imagined when she said, there is no society, there are just men and women and families. This is where we are. The libertarians won, uh, the conservatives won, and they're all so fucking mad about it. They can't shut up about how mad they are that they're not persecuted anymore. The fact that they're not persecuted anymore is what's persecuting them. You know, I mean, it's the, it's the, the comedian going on tour because they've been canceled thing but it's happening everywhere so i don't know it feels like what's happened here is that in in, over the course of the pandemic and in the wake of the george floyd uprisings the political establishment has has more or less decided to say the quiet part loud uh the the sort of unstated assumptions that are how a capitalist society can run in terms of there must always be 
there must always be losers for winners to exist. There must be an indebted underclass. There must be an imprisoned underclass, a criminal underclass, etc., etc., etc. They have decided to uh, give up the ghost on pretending that things are okay and uh, or or that, that that this is not necessary, and have just turned around and said, no, actually, blood sacrifice is what democracy needs to survive. And asking for free things like health care, education, or public transit, etc., 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 that's childish. But what's not childish? Catching COVID three times a year, going to work at McDonald's, and then going to work at Uber at night, and barely making enough money to pay the $1,800 in rent you have on your like studio apartment that's as big as a closet. That's not childish. That's just that's just adulthood. That's just what you got to get used to. You see how we're just we're just we're just building consent for a, a world that doesn't work for us. But a better world is possible. A better world is necessary, and it starts when we talk about it, when we imagine it, when we work towards it. There is there is so much even from even from people who who aren't like complete lib-brained monsters, uh, they'll say like oh well but you have such a hard time uh, running on socialist policies or or you'll never get people to approve of this or that or whatever. Number one, most major political shifts in history have happened with a minority of support, uh, left and right. Trying to appeal to everybody never works, no matter what you're doing, whether you're an artist or a politician. And what we're seeing right now is a party that is trying to appeal to everybody, I say in scare quotes, but they're actually appealing to conservatives. And of course, conservatives are better at appealing to conservatives than Democrats are. So there we go. That's where we are. But it's the media that constructs our ability to imagine what's possible if if the new york times started saying hey why aren't we why isn't medicare for all on like if they if they put if they lit a fire under biden's ass about covid uh if anybody gave a shit about any of this they they if they had the balls to just take a side and not like rely on this false uh neutral data thing that they they like to say like oh well uh, the, the the analytics say this, the poll numbers say that, as if every individual person has arrived uh, fully fledged at their current political perspective, and they are unchanging and unflappable in these in their opinions. But what's happening is just institutions passively accepting the premises given to them by the rich, because they're the ones who pay their bills, and and so. That's just that's just where we are. We're in the, the there is a a vast political echo chamber, and it's the Democrats and New York Times opinion columnists, uh, and it's bad. It, it seems like the Democrats have absolutely no interface with real human people on the ground, and um, and their policy decisions are being made for their own interests and nobody else's, and we're living the consequences right now. And when it comes to the question of, like, how do I end this podcast on a not-bummer note, uh, I don't know. I don't think that this podcast is going to be a no-bummers show anymore, if it ever was. I will say, if nothing else, my tits have been getting bigger. Uh, HRT is, 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 is good. I like being on HRT. I like living in Seattle. It's, uh, it's like 110 degrees in, in Texas in some places. Uh, it's it's a lot nicer here. I like I like living in a place that isn't um, super super hot all of the time. I guess I'll end on a very similar note to what I ended on last week, which is that these people who are in charge are incompetent and lazy and just generally not very good at their jobs. And they've managed to keep their seat of power largely by funding the the capitalist mob that is the police and stealing from the working class. And I think it's very unfortunate that we have reached this point, but we have reached a point where there's nothing left to steal. We're a generation bereft 
And I just don't think that this publicity stranglehold that the Democrats have, that, that, that the liberal establishment has, is going to hold. I just don't think it can. It's really the next two years are going to determine a lot of what happens next. Um, not even so much in the sense of like where the midterms go. I'm, I don't, the midterms are going to go how they're going to go. But I do think that there is a lot of potential for other stuff to go down in the next two years. Just consider how much things have changed, how much our political horizons have evolved in the last two years. How different are you now from who you were right before the pandemic started? How much of your political beliefs changed? How has your, your opinion of other people changed? Do you feel more comradeship with your fellow man, or do you, do you hate your fellow man more? I don't know. I think there's a little bit of both, but I think it's safe to say that anything that you are feeling is something somebody else is feeling too. And any dissatisfaction that you have with the system that, that we have been saddled with uh, is a dissatisfaction that is shared with you by millions, most of whom whose names and faces you'll never know. And it is with those people that we must always act in solidarity. And I do believe that that our victory is inevitable on the long on, on the long term because we're the ones who create the value. We're the ones who make this world turn. And we have we have seen now we have given capitalism its chance <laughs> we have seen what happens when capitalism is left to its own devices the invisible hand of the market drives us towards apocalypse and i just don't think that the drivers of that invisible hand are as absolutely ruthlessly efficiently capable of killing everybody as they want us to think. A better world is possible. Victory is inevitable sooner or later. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. And I guess that's going to do it for this maybe a little bit long episode of Trans Questioning. been your host, Sarah Zedig. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun. You can also find my YouTube videos at youtube.com slash C slash Let's Talk About Stuff. If you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, you can give me as little as a dollar a month over on camaraderie.co slash Sarah Zedig. Camaraderie is a worker-owned co-op alternative to Patreon that is uh, very promising, still very much in the alpha stage, but getting better every day. Uh, the music is by Molly Noise. Cover art is by Deer Witch. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>